0: Good morning. It's good to be together with you at this uh, fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, I thought I'd start this morning with a confession, if that's okay. I'm a control freak. Uh, I've grown in this over the years. I've become less controlling. uh, And I hope it's because of the Holy Spirit's work in me and not just because I'm getting older and more tired and it takes a lot of energy to control. But whatever the case, I'll take it. uh, I've grown in this, but I still struggle. And and this shows up for me uh, really clearly whenever I have a free day planned with my family and the plan falls apart. I become a baby of sorts, a 200-pound adult baby. And this response of mine has to do with my unmet expectations. I have in mind how my my perfect day is supposed to go. I can see it. Maybe you are like this too sometimes. I can taste it. It's so satisfying, and and, and here's what it looks like for me. Uh, Everyone sleeps in. Uh, Julie and I wake up a little before the kids and share a morning coffee, do a little snuggling on the couch. By the way, Julie's my wife, just to make that clear. Uh, By the time our coffee is getting cold and the kids get up from bed, they rush to give us hugs. They tell us they love us so much, can't wait to spend the day with us. They're 15. This is a miracle in itself. (laughs) The dogs go outside to do their business instead of in the hallway. <laughs> maybe we go out to breakfast. Maybe we uh, play a board game, go to a movie, whatever. In the afternoon, we all spend a few hours reading or napping or taking our dogs to the beach, and we end the day just thankful for God and for each other and this life, and we can't wait to do it again. That's my idea of a great day. And there have been some days that kind of get close to that, and hopefully there will be a few more that kind of get close to that. But at least as often uh, as, as that happens, our family experience is the opposite. It doesn't turn out that way. We get a phone call, and it's an emergency, and it can't wait. Or one of the kids will get sick. We'll have to cancel our plans. Or the toilet backs up. Or you get a flat tire. Or 50% of us are in a bad mood. You know, in a family of four, you can absorb 25% of you being in a bad mood, but 50%, it, it, it spoils everything. Insert your own interruption here. I'm what you might call an aggressive optimist. I, I major in the good that could be, and I will fight to make sure that it happens. I don't give up my perfectly planned day very easily. My wife, on the other hand, uh, she's a realist, She would like things to go a certain way, but if they don't, she rolls with it. I don't roll. I scream like a baby. When what I expected and what often actually happens don't line up, it's tough for me. And I can be, let's just say, difficult in those situations when just a day doesn't turn out the way I had expected. Imagine how frustrating it must have been for John the Baptist, who we've been considering in our Advent series, to him, for him to have certain expectations about the Messiah, Israel's deliverer, who he would be, what he would do, and to be so certain that Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah, only to call this into question, to doubt it, when what he expected was not matching up with what he was hearing and seeing In Jesus. Now, if you've been tracking with our series or you're familiar with the Gospels, uh, you know that there's already been lots of reasons for confidence that Jesus is the Messiah and John plays an important role in his coming. Uh, In Luke 1, the first uh, week of our Advent series, we have an angel Gabriel and a prophecy from John's priest dad, Zechariah, both saying that John, this child, would be the forerunner of the the Messiah, the one to prepare the way. That was week one. Mark 2, I'm sorry, in the second week of our Advent series, in Mark 1, we encounter an adult John baptizing in the wilderness, fulfilling God's calling on him to prepare the way of the Lord. His life was one of great devotion and single-mindedness. He's living in the desert until it's time for him to emerge And have his ministry of baptism. And that would turn people's hearts toward God. Prepare them for the coming of their king, Jesus. In our third week of Advent, we looked at John 3 last week. We heard John say, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. He must increase. I must decrease. I'm content to be the friend of the groom, but the groom is greater than I am. Uh, Of whom is he talking? Jesus. That's who John's talking about. And we know that for certain because a couple chapters earlier in John chapter 1, when Jesus is coming toward John and, and John's disciples, John says of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So, John is really clear. He's full of confidence a confidence that has been building his whole life that Jesus is the Messiah, the coming one, the one to redeem Israel. He's really, really clear on that. Until he's not. (laughs) After everything that's been said, after John's years of devotion to his calling, after his bold declaration, behold the Lamb of God, he doubts. He wonders, could I have been wrong all this time? We heard that in the scripture reading, Matthew eleven two 2 and 3. Then when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said, ask Jesus this, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John's question was, who is Jesus? And in the outline in your bulletin, it's followed by two more questions. Who is John? And then finally a question for us, who are you? These questions, I think, Uh, will help us this morning to get to the heart of our expectations. And that's a good gift for us, when God shows us our hearts. So I hope we're all ready to receive that this morning. Now, a little background. John the Baptist is imprisoned uh, because uh, not what he said about Jesus, but what he said about Herod. Maybe you remember that. Luke chapter 3 tells us that John kept telling Herod, you're a sinner. It's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. You're an adulterer, Herod. That was John's message to the king. You're an evil man. Repent. And this is this is really amazing. John, this locust eating, camel hair-wearing crazy man living in the woods, tells Herod, the king, who could do whatever he wanted to whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted, with no accountability. He says to him, Quit being a jerk. John calls Herod out, and that lands him in prison. So John's in prison. Uh, No doubt considering what he rightly thought were his last days, and he has this burning question that he needs answered. Who is Jesus? He tells his disciples, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus does not answer. How often does Jesus answer a question exactly as it's put to him? I don't know if ever. He doesn't say, I am, go back and tell him that. But he gives them a roundabout answer. He shows his power. He alludes to what the scriptures say about the coming one, the Messiah. Listen to verses 4 and 5 again from Matthew 11. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And if you read the parallel account in Luke's gospel, chapter 7 of Luke, we read this same event. Jesus actually puts his power on display. Luke seven twenty one says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. So after all that, Jesus says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Now we've already said that Jesus wasn't quite living up to John's expectations for the Messiah. At least from John's perspective, some things were missing. What, what was missing? Judgment, vengeance, overthrow of oppressors, any getting the bad guys. The Messiah was expected by John and, and others to be a great deliverer, wasn't he? And this deliverance, no doubt in their minds, would bring down the cruel rulers of their day, people like Herod and the soldiers who were occupying their land. And it's not like John's just making up what he thought Messiah would be like and saying, well, he's not meeting my expectations. Now he got his expectations from prophecies and from the Hebrew scriptures. Scriptures like Isaiah 61, where the Messiah's deliverance of God's people included liberty for the captives. And, and Jesus even references that in the temple in Luke 4. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. They bring him the scroll. He unrolls it to the place where, John, where Isaiah mentions this, liberty for the captives. He reads that. This great day of deliverance is coming. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing because I'm him. I'm the great deliverer. It's me. So we can understand John's frustration, his confusion. If Messiah is Jesus and he has come, and the Messiah's arrival means liberty for the captives, then what in the Gehenna am I doing in jail? John must have thought that for crying out loud. Do you remember the way that John described Messiah's ministry in in Luke 3? He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than me is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John's wondering, where's the fire Where's the winnowing fork, this judgment? Where's the great deliverer that's going to overthrow all God's enemies and ours? What's up with these chains? This can't be right. Are you the one or shall we look for another? We might think, John, where's your faith? But that's a fair question. Jesus lets his mighty works form the answer to John's question. It's not just that he wanted to put on a show or a reminder of the the fact that he can do all these powerful things. What he does is point to what the prophet said about the Messiah, what would characterize the Messiah's ministry when he came. And a lot of that comes from the prophet Isaiah. Blind people would see, says Isaiah, chapter 29 and 35. Lame people would walk, that's Isaiah 35. Deaf people would hear, that's Isaiah 29, 35, and 42. Dead people would rise, Isaiah 26. Poor people would have the good news preached to them. Isaiah 61. All these passages from Isaiah have to do with the Messiah, what Messiah would do when he arrived. And there's no missing it. Jesus means to make that link between the Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament and himself in verse 5. Jesus has done all these things. He does what the Messiah will do. He doesn't say to John, It's me, I'm the Messiah. But he does say, well, John, the Messiah is going to do all these things when he comes. And I've done all these things. You decide. And don't forget, Jesus says to those messengers who came this last little bit in verse 6, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Even though judgment is delayed, John, don't be offended by me. Even though you're in prison, John, don't be offended by me. Even though things aren't quite as you expected them, John, don't be offended by me. Don't stumble over me based on what you don't understand. Come to me. Stay with me based on what you do understand. I think that's a word for us today, isn't it? And for all our our Christmas Eve visitors tomorrow. Don't stumble over Jesus because of what you don't know. Because that list never ends. Come to Jesus based on what you do know, what you see and hear in Jesus, the good and beautiful and compelling things you see in the followers of Jesus. Look to Jesus. That should be our word. What do you see? What do you hear? Let that draw you near to him, not drive you further away. Can you believe in a God who doesn't live up to your expectations? Can you follow a Messiah who doesn't do things exactly the way that you do them? Listen, if you can stay married to an imperfect person or or in relationship with anyone for that matter who doesn't do things exactly the way you do them, you can certainly follow a Savior who zigs when you would have zagged. Beware of trusting in your expectations of Jesus instead of trusting in Jesus Don't rest on your faith in Jesus. Rest on Jesus. He will never disappoint. Who is Jesus? He's the one who is to come. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior, the world's true King, the Lord. He alone, there is no other. So these disciples of John's who traveled about 100 miles to to get to Jesus and ask him this question, they leave. They take word back to John. Matthew then tells us in verse 7 uh, that Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. That's the second question in the outline. They're probably listening in to all this stuff about John and Jesus and what the question was. Who is John? That's a question Jesus asks and answers for us. He, he does this by asking rhetorical questions. One in seven, one in eight, one in nine. The first question, verse 7, what did you go out in the wilderness to see, he says to the crowd. And by using the word wilderness, he's making a clear reference to John's ministry. John was in the wilderness. He's the unusual prophet in the wilderness until his public appearing. It's like saying, who did you go to the White House to see would be a reference to the president. Who'd you go to the wilderness to see Is a reference to John? What'd you got to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Is that what you expected to see out there? There were a lot of reeds that grew in their region. They could be 10 to 15 feet tall. And Jesus is asking the crowd, and maybe employing a little bit of humor, did you go out to the wilderness to see plants? Was it scenery that got you out there? Of course not. And by the way, we have to say this, John is not like a wind-blown reed. After all, he's in jail for speaking truth to power. So if not that, question number two, what did you go out then to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. And in other words, did you expect to find someone royal out there in the sticks? Of course, the answer is no. Some later Greek manuscripts, including the word duh. <laughs> not really. If not that, his final question what'd you go out then to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, more than they expected. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So did you hear that? This, this is amazing. Not only is Jesus spoken of in the scriptures, so is John the Baptist. John is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now this sounds a lot like Malachi who was the last writing prophet before 400 years of silence about the Messiah. In Malachi 3:1 we read, "The Lord says this, behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me." But notice that Jesus' words in Matthew 11:10 and Malachi 3:1 are a little different. Rather than saying and he will prepare the way before me like Malachi 3 says, Jesus says, "He will prepare your way before you." Clearly, there's an allusion to Malachi 3, behold, I send my messenger. And that's meant to show that Jesus recognizes John as the end-time prophet foretold in the scriptures, the the Elijah-type figure who would precede the coming of the Lord. But in addition to Malachi, there there seems to be a connection to Exodus 23, 30, where we read, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. That passage from Exodus speaks of God's protection of his people while they wander in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So in bringing the two together, Jesus is, is kind of doing a little here and here, Malachi 3.1, Exodus 23.30, he brings them together and he says about John, he's a great prophet, the one foretold in the scripture, the one who would precede the Messiah, and he's the one to prepare the people for Messiah's coming to protect God's people by getting them ready for their king. He's doing both. Remember the angel Gabriel, how he described John's mission in Luke 1. He said, uh, he used three phrases, going before, turning, making ready. Well, now Jesus says, John is God's agent to prepare you for me. He prepared my way For you, and he prepared you for me. He's this bridge. He's bringing us together. Because of that key role, because John had such a unique role, even among all the prophets, he's more than a prophet. More than a prophet because of where he stands in relation to me, Jesus says. Look in verse 11. Among those born of women, I don't know how you'd be born of anyone else. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so among all human beings up to that point, I would say there's one caveat, who experienced a non-virgin birth. Jesus is, is exempt. Among all human beings born up to that point, there's no one more significant, more privileged, more special or unique than John. Does that mean that John is greater than Father Abraham? it would seem so. Greater than the mighty King David? Yes. Greater than the wise Solomon? Yes. Greater than the great prophet Isaiah and all the other prophets of Israel? Well, here's a simple question. Were they born among women? Yes. John's greater than all those born among women. So the answer is yes. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John Verse 13 says, but if you'll accept it, John is the final one in that long line of pointers because the one to whom they all pointed is finally here. The prophets and the patriarchs, their message was, he's coming, he's coming, look for him, get ready, Messiah is coming. Only John have the privilege of saying he's coming and there he is, right there. That man is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that one right there, eating lunch with his disciples, getting falafel crumbs on his robe. The message is no longer Messiah will come, but joy to the world, the Lord has come. The Messiah is here. John is great. There's no denying it. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He comes in the spirit of Elijah. He suffers violence on behalf of the kingdom of God, being in prison and and martyred soon. No one born of women can compare to John. And all that buildup makes the second part of verse 11 even more incredible. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than, than he, greater than John. So all those born of women, no one's greater than John. John's at the top, but the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. John. Again, no demoting John, going back on what Jesus said about his greatness, but it shows that Jesus is making a dramatic distinction between the old age, which John brought to a close, and the new age, which comes about because of Jesus. The the new age, the new covenant which Jesus inaugurated is, is of such a higher quality that even the greatest in the old is least than the least in the new. Friends, that's the gospel. We might say we believe in our own depravity and that the righteousness of Christ is our only standing, but consider practically what it means to believe that least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. It means that the most deplorable, low-character, horrible wretch who has only lived for themselves hurts those around them, and just recently came to believe in Jesus is greater than the forerunner to the Messiah. That's too good to be true. Yes. It's the gospel. Yeah, I don't know if you have a sleazy cousin, but it just fit here. Your sleazy cousin who stole from your aunt and uncle to support their drug habit, burned every bridge they had twice, got kicked out of rehab, ended up getting saved through a prison ministry is greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, and John the Baptist. Can you believe that? How can that be? Because the gospel's true. Because when the righteousness of Jesus is laid to someone's account, they really, truly receive the righteousness of God not because of anything they've done. In fact, despite what they've done, but all because of what Jesus has done on their behalf. Do you believe that? Can you believe this gospel? That because of Jesus, you and anyone else, anyone else who puts their faith in Jesus is greater than the most holy, devoted, righteous person that we read about In the Hebrew Scriptures, greater than the greatest born of women, up to John. It's true. It's miraculous and it's true. The only way that could come about, friends, for sinners like us to receive the righteousness of Jesus is because of what happened on the cross. Remember what was tripping up John from his cell? What caused many to miss the Messiah? The absence of judgment in the ministry of Jesus. Where's the fire? Where's the winnowing fork? Where's the judgment of God? Where are those things? Where is the vengeance of God that Isaiah says will come when the Messiah shows up to bring deliverance and proclaim victory? Where is it? Was it a false threat like parents sometimes make to their kids? No, the wrath of God has come. The judgment of God on evil, the condemnation of sinners... It has come, but it didn't fall on those who deserved it. It fell on Jesus instead as he hung on that cross for you and for me. We sing, behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. What's that very next line? It was my sin That held him there. God did judge the world, all evil, all sin. He did it in a way that was totally unexpected, not by burning up his enemies, but by sacrificing his only beloved son. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. Who is John? He's his forerunner, his chief pointer the greatest of his era. And final question, who are you? In our passage, there seem to be two options set before us. A person who has ears to hear, verse 15, or a petulant child who plugs their ears when they don't get their way, verses 16 to 19. One posture says, speak, I'm listening. And the other says, you're not listening to me. They both see and hear the same things from Jesus. One comes to Jesus. One responds to his word at the end of Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. One comes. The other doesn't. You live with this in your family. If you're a Christian and your siblings aren't or your parents aren't, or you might wonder, why did I come and they didn't? We, we've heard the same things. We have the same background. I, I don't know. And you know what? It's not ours to know. Ours is to preach and pray and share our faith and live our lives for Jesus and trust that just as he has brought us to himself, he will do the same for many others. What a great time of the year for him to do that. There's a couple of prayers printed on the back of the outline. If, uh, if either of those would be your prayer today, uh, please talk to... Uh, Someone that, that you trust or I'd love to speak with you uh, at the door following the service. Is Jesus the one to come? Uh, not a rhetorical question. Is Jesus the one to come? Uh, okay, three of you believe he is. Hold on, hold on. Is Jesus the one to come? Should we look for another Jesus is Lord. He's not what anyone expected. He's so much more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. You do for your creation what needs to be done. You created everything good and beautiful, and we spoiled it. And even after we did, you weren't done. You redeem. Thank you for sending Jesus, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the, the world's true Savior, the King of glory. May we, your people, look to Him today. May you use our lives to point others to Him, even as John pointed to Jesus. May our lives point to Jesus in such a way that they would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away my sin do this for us this year. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.